Hello, everybody, and welcome to this edition of So Important. Today, our guest is Dr. Gerson Scher. He has written a book entitled From Pugwash to Putin, A Critical History of U.S.-Soviet Scientific Cooperation. Dr. Scher was involved in these efforts for many, many years, and he's going to talk about his experiences, some of the many interesting people that he's met along the way, and some of the lessons learned from this experience and how they may be applicable today. What's interesting about efforts to cooperate scientifically during the Cold War and in the immediate years after is that they took place between the United States and the former Soviet Union, two bitter enemies who still found a way to cooperate in advanced science in the name of common national interests. It is a fascinating story, and I am so glad that we have Gerson with us. He holds an honorary doctorate from the Moscow Engineering Physics Institute's and he remains a steadfast and dedicated advocate for justice and the public good as a Virginia organizer for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. This is a guy who likes to help improve the lives of others, and I am so glad to have him on the show. Gerson, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you as a guest. And what I'd really like to learn about today is what motivated you to write the book and what your role was in U.S.-Soviet scientific cooperation. So maybe we can help people understand what that is a little bit. Great. You know, I spent my career, 40 years or so, working in the management of scientific cooperation with the the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. I worked at the National Academy of Sciences, the National Science Foundation, from which I retired. Uh, Also some nonprofits, uh, George Soros' International Science Foundation in the early 90s, which provided uh, over $100 million in emergency support uh, for uh, former Soviet scientists. Uh, I turned out to be the chief operating officer, which was amazing. And then um, a public foundation, the, the Civilian Research Development and Development Foundation for the Independent States for the former Soviet Union, uh, which I founded at the NSF's request. And in my last capacity, I worked in a small industry uh, high-tech association that you, Monty, know well. Uh, it was called the U.S. Industry Coalition, or USIC, and we worked on finding opportunities for former Soviet weapons of mass destruction scientists to to develop commercial technologies together with American high-tech companies. And, and in fact, in terms of many of its objectives, it was successful beyond expectations. I mean, I started in 1973. I retired in 2012. My last science course was actually in high school, uh, but uh, I came into this from the Russian studies field. Why did I write the book? You know, when I retired in 2012, I was done with Russia. It was like, it was like an evil obsession. And, and, uh, all my books, my wife made fun of me. All my books on, uh, had, had red, um, uh, red spines on the, on the bookshelf. And that's kind of what I did. And, uh, I wanted to get away from it. And I got more and more deeply involved in social activism for racial justice. And I'm really very passionate about that. But a few years ago, I guess it was four years ago, I was sitting around and I realized that this was such a great story. It was the first time that governments used formal bilateral agreements and treaties and programs to promote scientific cooperation. And these were the world's two first, two great superpowers, not friendly. And I realized that it's an important episode 
for the history of science. It's an important thing to understand in terms of international relations and just uh, in terms of world peace. But let's step back for a second, uh, because people may be listening to this and saying, well, what is scientific cooperation? Why would we be doing this in the middle of the Cold War when we were bitter enemies? What were you trying to do? You know, there were, there were really many different strands at once. The first time that scientific cooperation between the two countries was mentioned was in 1957 at a meeting uh, in Pugwash, Nova Scotia, of scientists from around the world who had been involved in the development of the atomic nuclear bombs and who were concerned about disarmament. Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein had issued a manifesto uh, a couple of years before calling for world disarmament. Uh, President Eisenhower had started something called people-to-people exchanges. Uh, Very importantly, uh, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev in February of 1956 stunned the world and his own country by denouncing Joseph Stalin and announcing a kind of a thaw and something he called peaceful coexistence. So there are a lot of these notions in the air. Then what happened is uh, October 1957, Sputnik was launched, and that changed the game completely. We, that is, people in the government, in the national security establishment, in our universities and research labs, figured out <laughs> that we didn't know a thing about what was going on in Russia scientifically. Sputnik was really an engineering accomplishment. Some of the, uh, the, the key scientific accomplishments were before that when the Soviets developed the hydrogen bomb, not so much the atomic bomb, but the hydrogen bomb in the early 1950s. So we realized we were in the dark. Russia was completely isolated, or the Soviet Union, sorry, was completely isolated. And we really needed to know for national security purposes what was going on. There were also scientists, very importantly, who, who felt, you know, there, there must be important opportunities for scientific cooperation. Why is that important? Scientific cooperation is um, probably about uh, 300 years old, international scientific cooperation. And nowadays, it's even more important because scientists need to collaborate with each other. And it really is a matter of mutual benefit. What we realized in the 1950s and the 1960s is that in certain areas, the Soviet Union was on a par or ahead in certain areas of scientific research, particularly in theoretical physics, in computational mathematics, and uh, nuclear physics, and areas that were of significant concern. In other areas, they were not at a par, uh, although the, the common perception was, oh, the Russians are behind us. But that, that kind of exploded in, in the scientific community and the national security community with Sputnik. So, in 1958, the government, our government asked the National Academy of Sciences to negotiate uh, an agreement on scientific cooperation as part of the uh, overall cultural exchanges agreement that had been concluded the year before. Um, and that agreement got underway in 1959. There was another program called IREX, the International Research and Exchange Program, that um, Mostly involved scholars on our side, but it certainly involved scientists on the Russian, on the Soviet side. What typically would a collaboration look like? A scientific collaboration would be two scientists working on a common, commonly defined research project where each has something unique to offer. That is two, let's say, teams of scientists 
who have something unique to offer and something that the other side doesn't have. And their commitment is to the advancement of knowledge. And their goal is to uh, publish an article in the international scientific literature, but also to advance the research in their own uh, laboratories and in their own countries. So they might travel back and forth. They might send graduate students, young scientists to the other's lab for a period of time and exchange papers. Um, uh, and, and through the exchange of people in their labs, they might conduct uh, experiments, each with their own kind of unique uh, perspectives and equipment and so on. And they wouldn't necessarily have a military purpose, right? They would be no. the exact opposite. That was certainly one of the requirements for scientific cooperation through the end of the Cold War. Uh, what was being researched was generally available information and not of dual-use purpose. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, there were some common efforts between some of our more defense-oriented entities. That was not something that I was personally involved with. I was always on the basic research side, the National Science Foundation kind of, kind of topics. Now, as someone who is involved in this work a little bit, I know, and I know that you know, that there's always skeptics. There are always those who say, you know, you're, you're giving away our secrets. They're getting more out of it than we are. There's nothing to show for all this work. How do you generally respond to those people? There are uh, examples that you can always bring forth of either proposition. Uh, for instance, in theoretical physics, in materials research, in the geosciences, where there, you have one seventh of the Earth's landmass in the former Soviet Union, where there are unique opportunities for on flora, fauna, fauna, rocks, air, water. These are immeasurably invaluable things to to have access to, and in some other areas, um, notably molecular biology, there was very little to be gained because the the Soviet Union had shot itself in the foot in the 1930s with the work of Trofim Lysenko, who was a some people would say he's a charlatan. Some people would say he was a, a political scientist, but uh, he um, he propagated some theories about inherited traits, inherited characteristics that are externally um, influenced um, that uh, that were very suspect, and and he basically uh, initiated a persecution of scientists who who disagreed with him. That was so. Soviet molecular biology was decimated for a generation or two. But, you know, if you, if you step up to the next level, what I would call the, say, the 30,000 foot level, on the one hand, you had an open society, the United States, an open society with, with, with some plugs in it, in the right areas and national security and so on, and a closed society, the Soviet Union. We did not read their papers. They published in Russian, in the Russian language, and, and I'm talking about all the way through the mid-1980s. They published in the Russian language and Russian language journals. We had to wait months to get translations, and it was far from ideal. On the other hand, they immediately had access to our papers. So you could argue that any access that we got, that our scientists got, to the work that was being done there was a net plus. My guess is that you 
had the privilege of working with some really interesting and intelligent people along the way. Oh my, yes. Uh, yeah, you know, that was the, that was one of the most fun parts of the book and one of the greatest parts of my, uh, of my career. In the book, I decided to take a kind of an oral history approach and I was able with a uh, travel and research grant from the MacArthur Foundation to go around the country and around the world and interview scientists, diplomats, government officials, and others who were involved in these programs, and actually from the very beginning. And some of the stories are great. Uh, I, I love the stories. So there's a scientist named Roald Hoffman. Um, Roald Hoffman is a chemist. He uh, He's an organic chemist. As a young man in 1959, he went on an exchange visit to uh, to the Soviet Union, to Moscow. And the way he tells the story, he was really interested more in the history of art. Um, he wasn't really sure he wanted to be a chemist. But he basically, the, the visit to Russia was a year-long visit with his new wife, was, a, was time off. And later on, Roald Hoffman went on to, to win a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And when I asked him, well, what did you get out of it? What, 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 what was your main benefit? He's, did it influence your science? He said, no, not at all. Yet he went back every two years. And uh, he said, no, it was the people. I was fascinated by the people because here you had what the Russians uh, call and other people in similar societies call an intelligentsia. And these were people who were not only educated in their field, but they were culturally educated uh, loved music, art, literature, and also tended to be politically independent. In fact, they went into science, many of them, because they didn't have to, in science, they didn't have to hear the lectures about Marxism-Leninism, and they could pursue their own interests and principles. So these were the people that Roland found, found uh, fascinating. And as for the science, you know, it was interesting, but it wasn't really his main thing. Now, there's another scientist who is also who also more recently became a Nobel laureate named Kip Thorne. Kip is a gravitational uh, theoretician from Caltech. He began visiting the Soviet Union, Russia in the late 1960s and he did this not on any of the formal exchange programs. He did this with his own research grants. He happens to be one of the most brilliant people in in this country. Uh, and he was able to get research grants from the National Science Foundation that allowed him to do these things. The overall cultural exchange agreements between the two governments allowed him to do those things with a certain kind of, you know, diplomatic protection and so on. When he went to the Soviet Union, he met and worked with some of the great minds of the 20th century, Yakov Zildovich, Andrei Sakharov, and, and many others. And uh, he actually became Sakharov's messenger at one point, bringing bringing letters and so on from Sakharov to the United States. And uh, he found a, a a gravitational experimentalist, very rare person, at Moscow State University named Vladimir Briginsky. And Briginsky had figured out uh, that they were talking about measuring gravitational waves, which at the time was 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 speculation. Einstein had predicted it, but no, many people didn't believe it. No, nobody knew how to measure it, but Kip and some of his colleagues from MIT and elsewhere decided early on that this was an important field and it could revolutionize physics, which it has, by the way. And um, Briginsky figured out that despite the best instruments, you could not resolve a gravitational wave without uh, quantum mechanics. 
And that's very complicated, and I won't go into it. But they continued to work together, Thorne and Braginsky, the American team and Braginsky, on a design of something called the Long Range Interferometer Gravitational Observatory, or LIGO, which was finally funded in the late 1980s by the National Science Foundation. And then what happened was, in 1991, the Soviet Union falls apart. Braginsky's lab um, is decimated. People are leaving. He doesn't have the instrumentation and so on. So I happened to be in the position I could make a $5,000 emergency grant through Kip Thorne to Braginsky to help him maintain his lab and so on. And Thorne told me several years later in 2015 that if it were not for that grant, we would not have measured, actually detected a gravitational wave. That's like my favorite story. When you look back on this work, uh, I'm just wondering, what is the legacy of this work? And then looking forward, how do you see a role for this kind of cooperation today? Through all my interviews, I asked a lot of questions, you know, what were your interests? What were your motivations? How do you look back on them today? And so on. And I also tried to evaluate that for the formal bilateral government programs. By and far, more than scientific achievement, more than national security benefit even, more than all that were the personal relationships. And here we go back to the, to the goals of President Eisenhower in the 1950s, because he felt that developing personal relationships based on trust, based on their, on people's joint professional interests was the most important and enduring thing. And indeed, kind of testimony that I got from my respondents in both, on both sides validated that. So that's, that's, that's an important legacy. There are also important lessons that we've learned about how to do international scientific cooperation in the future. And going forward, I think that bilateral cooperation uh, when it takes place, is usually politically motivated. It's not a bad thing. And any bilateral cooperation has to have scientific or professional substance. Otherwise, it's not going to be any good either scientifically or politically. But increasingly, the, the main form of international scientific collaboration today is multilateral. You have massive global projects on climate, on food, on oceans, on all kinds of things. And these are projects where uh, scientists from many countries bring their unique experience and perspectives and so on and work together. I think that the bilateral projects are important, usually, as I say, from a foreign policy perspective. But uh, going forward, probably multilateral cooperation is the main thing. So from your perspective, absolutely, there is a role for this kind of cooperation in the future. Unquestionably, if there's not a role, we're in big trouble. Gerson, you've had a great career. Thank you. Uh, you've written a wonderful book, and I hope people will check it out. And I just want to say thank you for spending a few minutes with me. It was very exciting for me to talk to you, and I really enjoyed it. And I think a lot of other people will find this very interesting as well. It's always great to talk with you, Monty, and, and I hope this is useful and of interest to your audience. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.